You are listening to Keystone's Stock Talk Show, episode 209. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com for our Your Stock Artake segment, and we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. It's great to be back with you this week. We have a busy show, starting with a brief discussion of our research trip to the Planet Microcap Conference in Las Vegas. We will then shift gears to Aaron with another earnings season review segment, including a look at the numbers from Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Meta, which all reported earnings over the past week. Brett will take a look at one of the biggest stories over this past week, the collapse of First Republic Bank. Finally, if he was recovered enough from Las Vegas, Brennan will look at the recent strategy of mortgage extending that Canadian banks have been beginning en masse or en masse in an attempt to help ease the pain of some Canadians that are facing in this high rate environment or higher rate environment. So let's get to the show. I'm going to welcome my co-host, Aaron, and the Killer Bees, Brett and Brennan. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Doing well. Yeah. Welcome back. Good, good. Big, uh, big, big week for you guys. Last yes. week, yeah. it was. Uh, we were in Las Vegas at the Planet Microcap event. There's about 80 small and microcap companies there couple of companies that we're very familiar with um, that we sat down, had dinner with Geodrill and Invela Corporation, know the management there, got to know them even further, have sat down before with uh, the uh, management of Geodrill, but haven't sat down in person with Invela. So it was good to sit down with them, uh, pick their brains, find out about them because they are, after all, the intellectual capital behind the investments that we're putting our money in and our clients' money in. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting to sit down and we interviewed, what, about 14, 15 other companies, Brennan? Yeah, on the Thursday. And, uh, yeah, the interviews went pretty well. Um, I mean, basically going through our recent U.S. sweep, we've already pulled out a lot of these names that were already at this conference. So it was kind of nice that, you know, we jumped on a call with them about a few weeks ago, got to actually sit across from them as well and shake their hands. So that was great. Um, And, yeah, I mean, that was a long day. Uh, we didn't have a break on that Thursday until right before our last meeting. And at that point, it was like, can we just get the last meeting over and done with here? Um, but no, good conversations. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was good. When I'm we flew in the first day, um, I, I did a panel uh, hosted by the event organizer. And there was four analysts, a uh, fund mon- manager from Montreal, one, I believe, from California, and another uh, analyst was on the panel as well. So it was quite interesting, went through kind of our strategies, what we're looking at in the markets right now, where we see value, things that keep us up at night, all of those standard questions that you get. And uh, I, I got to say, I just dominated the panel. So mm-hmm. it was great. Sure. Yeah, that's what we I only showed up halfway through. So uh, yeah, well, Brennan was still see. just recovering from his flight and, you know, had to go <laughs> yeah, in the room yeah. and so powder his face, up at night, whatever he does. 
Um, well, Aside for me, I talked about barking through the night. Yeah, I said that it was, was literally my dog's sorry. vicious diarrhea and my kids are keeping me up at night. That's the only thing. But uh, no, I mean, I talked about the fact that uh, interest rates have gone higher and consumer spending has just kind of stayed the same. And uh, whether those two things uh, come head on into each other at some point, you know, that probably yeah, keeps me up at night more than anything. Although, again, it is really just the dog that's keeping me up right now. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you know, those are issues that we talked about. There was a number of other, you know, things that people went into. Um, but let's be honest, nothing that deep. No. <laughs> just kidding. No, the other analysts were, they're quite good. It was a, it was a fun panel. So it was good. It was good. And, you know, we talked about, I, I like to give examples of, you know, companies that we've liked in the past. And, you know, we, we talked about, um, the, one of the questions was, um, something that you've learned uh, like over the past 10 years or maybe 20 years that you may not have known at the start, something that you've altered in your research approach. And we talked about, I just talked about one of the things that, you know, that I've learned over time is like, you don't always have to find the cheapest stock and the most, you know, the, the stock with all the dirt on it, you're polishing off and trying to find an underfollowed gem. Sometimes it's okay to pay, a reasonable price for a great company or a really good company. And those are one of the things that, you know, you learn over time. And I used, uh, you know, I used, uh, for example, um, Aritzia as an example of that. Like it wasn't the absolute cheapest stock that when we bought it, you know, back when it was $16. And then we've just had a new rating out. It, I'm not going to say what the rating is right now because we just released that to clients over the past couple of weeks. But it's not the cheapest stock, again, at $43. Now, but uh, does it have a great runway of growth ahead of it? Yes. Is it trading at relatively reasonable valuations given its growth and given the high quality of the business? And will I look back on it five years from now, 10 years from now and be thankful that I bought? You know, those are the questions that you kind of ask yourself now with 10, 20 years experience in the industry that you probably didn't 10 to 20 years ago. And, you know, it was good to go through that. And I went through, Aaron, when you presented on... Uh, Warren Buffett's analysis that went into buying Nike, which is one of his, you know, best buys of all time in the portfolio. It's not like it was trading at eight times earnings and growing at 25%. You know, it's probably growing 15 to 18% and trading it between 18 and 25 times earnings. So high quality company, not the cheapest stock out there, but at a reasonable price. So kind of use those examples too as well. So I, Hopefully we uh, uh, came across well at the event. I think it I think it went well. And then I did a couple fireside chats, uh, talked to the management from Invella in front of the crowd and the management from Geodrill in front of the crowd as well. Um, there was some uh, amazing technical difficulties at that oh, time, yeah. which is really fun to go through. But I think the message from those companies got across and really they're just, it's, it's them that are really presenting. I'm there just asking a few questions. Yep. All right. So any companies that stood out to you, Brennan, that we were there? I mean, probably just the companies we already have. Yeah, I don't really want right? to say any any names really, too, because we're going to yeah, be... Yeah, there's some know, companies we're looking at closely that were there. Yeah. He's putting me on the spot, and I actually don't have mm -hmm. any names in my mind, so I just, I'm just saying that. <laughs> he just went just blank. Kidding. No. Well, one company, you know, I did a quick, you know, kind of like we would a Your Stock, Our Take uh, segment, because there's one company on there... It doesn't fit our full criteria yet, but Brennan will have some comments on it because they are 
in the diamond industry, loosely speaking, not, not loosely there in the diamond industry. And it's Brennan's little favorite pet favorite, that industry. So why don't I just look at this company? We interviewed management there and, and we'll go through it. Like some, uh, a viewer asked a question. So the company's called Adamas one corp symbol is jewel or J E W L on the NASDAQ. It's about 77 cents. $16.3 million market cap. So a true micro cap company. They are a lab grown diamond manufacturer and producer of nearly flawless single crystal diamonds for gemstones and other industrial applications in their facility in Grenville, South Carolina. The company holds 36 patents and uses its proprietary chemical vapor deposition or CVD to grow gem sized and, gem -sized and smaller diamond crystals. Uh, the company's diamonds have the same physical, chemical, and optical properties as mined diamonds. So let's let's look at the balance sheet uh, from the last period. This company just listed in uh, December and has had share price uh, go down precipitously over that time. But I'm going to look at the balance sheet, then we'll get to where the share prices come. As at December 31st, the cash was $3.46 in the bank. Total current assets are 5.32. Total liability, 7.13. So there's a working capital deficit right now of just under 2 million. It's not something we like to see, but not completely alarming right now. So the stock price, like I said, is down 83% since it started trading in early December on the NASDAQ just around five months ago at $4.74. It's currently at 77 cents. Why? Well, I would say generally the environment for speculative small caps remains poor, but the valuations in December were high given the lack of significant revenues and what we would just call proofs of concept through sales. Ultimately, the company can forecast numbers all at once, until, but until the market sees proof, it's just a forecast and there's nothing really to fall back on. Let's look at the latest quarterly numbers. Again, the company is just getting started, but it's in its first quarter as a public company, sales were around 726,000. Adamas produced a loss of 6.73 million. Now, a huge percentage of that of the loss was from about 3.6 million in stock compensation and 2 million in warrants issued for conversion. Cash, so cash used in operations for the quarter after adjusting those was roughly 1.7 million. What is the plan here? It's to focus on its current facility, which houses 12 diamond growing machines and get them to full capacity, at which point management believes the company will be capable of generating an average of 3,000 rough cut diamonds per month. Recently, the company announced that with its reactors at full production capacity and full marketing underway, the company anticipates more than 12 million in annual sales from its current facility, like I said, in Grenville. Additionally, management intends to make a significant investment in building out the new facility, including building as many as 400 diamond growing machines. That would be a first phase, apparently. The first phase of that, sorry, would be apparently consist of installing 100 reactors which at full capacity would be able to generate up to 30 million in top line revenue, or they believe 14 million in EBITDA on a monthly basis, or more than 300 million top line revenues with 150 million in EBITDA on an annual basis. Those are some lofty margins. Now, our take here while the global lab grown diamond market is estimated to have reached 26 billion. In value as at 2020, it is estimated to now continue to grow at 10% from 2021 to 2030.
The competition here, however, is high and growing. There are a number of companies with far more financial resources than Adamas One at present, already producing high-quality lab-grown diamonds, including a company called Element 6, which is a privately held subsidiary of De Beers Group. Um, there's a AOTC Group of the Netherlands, Pure Grown Diamonds. They're in U.S., Singapore, and Malaysia. WD Grown Diamonds, and a number of others, including Hellsberg Diamonds under the brand Lightheart, which is backed by Warren Buffett. Now, the plans for Adamas One are ambitious. The company cites quality, its patent process, and insatiable demand for lab-grown diamonds as value creative for the business. The company also plans to enlist the services of prominent social influencers to further its brand, which could prove a smart strategy if well-managed, but that will all take capital. Again, Adamas is lacking some at present, but the company is only in its initial stages and it remains for us highly speculative. We monitor it, but it doesn't fit our criteria in terms of cash flow at present. That is speculative rather than investment quality at this stage. That's interesting. So that, grandiose plans. For sure. And the, like, these are the companies we interview. As of present. Yeah. yeah. Co- we interview and try to find out more about the businesses. This would be a very initial stage interview. So we got from information there, got some information ahead of time. Let's see if they can start to e- execute on that, create cash flow. Uh, and, you know, then we'll do the valuations at that point when they have mm-hmm. some cash flow. But it is initial stages, uh, big plans, but big competitors as well. So we have to monitor that. Yeah. And that's like the biggest thing that I would say is like the barriers to entry to get into creating lab created diamonds isn't that high. Like, I mean, we asked them how much does, does a reactor cost? And they were saying about $325,000 per reactor. So, I mean, realistically, like I brought up that number to my mom and she was like, wow, that's a lot of money. That's not a lot of money, mom, for someone that wants to get into, you know, making diamonds. Essentially, uh, it takes them about 30 days and they can make about 50 diamonds in one of these reactors. Um, But that's the thing. So low barriers to entry. We're seeing a, a crazy compound annual growth rate. Uh, And people need to understand too, that this isn't just from cannibalization of the natural diamond or natural mined diamond market. This is actually because these cheaper lab created diamonds are basically making essentially a new market uh, because, um, you know, new people are able to afford, you know, diamonds essentially, and they're being brought into. So, you know, this growth is twofold. We're seeing both cannibalization a little bit, as well as, you know, a new market for more uh, fashion jewelry. Um, You know, so my thought going forward, and I have no idea if even natural diamonds will be able to support their own price going forward. But seeing, you know, people chasing the compound annual growth rate in the industry, the low barriers of entry, realistically, um, it's not proprietary technology, as far as I understand. You know, uh, the the company that we talked to, he, you know, the CEO, he said that the te- technology is proprietary. I would argue that it's not. Uh, there are many companies out there. Well, doing anything it. can be proprietary. Yeah, their process you might your, be. You but, can just uh, put something unique into it, and it's proprietary. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's any value to that proprietary exactly. technology, or that it gives you a competitive advantage, right? So everybody likes to use the term proprietary. Mm-hmm. It may very well be, but that might not mean anything. Exactly. And, you know, I I did show Ryan this chart. So this is from Paul Zimniski. He's one of the leading diamond analysts out of uh, New York. 
And you can see here that generally the price of natural diamonds has held its ground, but we've seen lab-created diamonds come down quite uh, rapidly. Whereas people don't understand this too, De Beers has came out with a predatory pricing strategy where they're selling these lab-created diamonds uh, for about $800 per carat for, for a one-carat diamond. Uh, US, whereas a lot of these other competitors are around, you know, $3,500 per carat US. So, you know, De Beers is trying to preserve uh, that natural diamond price. Who knows if they'll be successful in it. Um, but, you know, with with the further, you know, supply that we're going to see as people are trying to chase, you know, these potential returns, I just don't see a world where, you know, as competition comes, we continue to see these generic lab diamond prices come down and down. Who's to say, um, as Ryan said, you know, I do like the diamond industry. Can't say I like it for much of an investment. It's more of just uh, my little pet project that I like following because it's an interesting industry. Um, but yes. And anyways, you also it, like to wear a lot of jewelry. <laughs> true. And yes, I am blinged yeah. out at all times. Correct. You have a diamond in one of your teeth, don't you? That's, that, yes, it's true. No. Look at, oh, I almost saw it there. He takes it out for the podcast. It's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, real. there is. And that's the thing is that you you take a tiny company like this, they look at the market as it is right now. Um, they invest a bunch of money in these reactors and in infrastructure, and they make projections based on current prices, but if prices get cut in half, or they decline even, you know, by a quarter, 30%, that changes the economics for those companies quite a bit. And you're right. I mean, the beers, which essentially, from what I understand, has a monopoly almost on natural diamonds, of course, they want to protect their market. So it incentivizes them to just flood the market potentially with man-made diamonds, yep. and then try and differentiate the natural diamonds from that, right? Like turn, turn, you know, artificially created diamonds into you know, exactly. it's more of a common item. That yeah. have and right now, just to put it into perspective too, De Beers is one of the, I think they're the second largest player, El Rosa, which is the Russian state uh, diamond company. Uh, they have a primary market share. Um, so it's kind of an oligopoly. In just the diamond industry overall. In the diamond industry in general. Right. Uh, okay. This is, I guess, natural diamonds. Natural diamonds. Yeah. Um, okay. Yes. And, and um, the the patented process here with Adamas one, it, apparently it was to produce the highest quality diamonds. Um, now, if there are obviously other competitors that are able to do this, and if you're talking about the machines to produce this only, you know, costing 325,000 or under, we heard in the meeting or under that amount, um, you know, if there's another way to do this and present and, and create those diamonds, which we, as we understand, there are, um, I'm not sure the end consumer is going to differentiate between the two and, and number two or three down the, the road is the more that are made. If the capital outlay is only this amount, uh, it's, it's become supply and demand. If there's a ton of supply, the price of these are going to go down. And, and you know, it just, to me, I'm not certain that you can continue to have. And you've seen that Brandon put up the chart, the price is going down over time. Uh, you know, it, it does seem like the barriers to entry are low. Price comes down. I'm not sure if these will be worth much. The other side of the coin, too, is um, these, uh, they used to be marketed that they were eco-friendly. Well, the energy that goes into producing those is quite high, and they're not allowed to say now that they're eco-friendly. 
So they are now saying conflict-free, some of them, right, that are being produced. Yep. But um, again, you know, it, it does look a little bit like, a little bit like, I mean, you look at the cannabis industry to grow cannabis. Um, it didn't take an absolute rocket scientist and it actually didn't take a ton of capital. It kept tech some, but you end up getting so much supply brought online that it crushed the market really. So, yeah. I mean, it's not the exact parallel that's going on here, but you know, uh, just the forecast from that company seemed very impressive. Whether they achieve them, we will see over time. And there's a number of factors that we'll, they'll have to fight against and we'll monitor that. So let's move on to our next segment. Aaron's going to review some significantly larger companies. Uh, he's going to look at Facebook, well, which is Meta now, Alphabet, Amazon, and uh, Microsoft. It's a pretty, pretty busy quarterly numbers. Last last week in the market. Uh, so Q1 earnings season, particularly in the U.S., is in full steam right now. Either of you want to guess as to how many companies released financial results last week in North America? Uh, 487. 200. 392. About 750 companies. Oh, we yeah. were adding ours up. Yeah. It was our guess. Yeah. Right. So, um, huge week. So that if we're playing closest and not to without going yes, over, you won. I won. yes, yes won. thank you. Very good. Very good. So huge, huge week in the market, obviously. And the, um, the Canadian market tends to, um, tends to lag a little bit. So we'll start to see more of those names come out with, uh, I believe this week is a pretty busy week starting to get busier for Canadian stocks releasing their financial results, but a lot of companies, I was very busy on the weekend going through earnings releases. I uh, couldn't get through all of them, unfortunately, but there were four companies in particular that I want to talk about right now, just given their size and importance that released results last week. And these were Microsoft, Amazon, um, Alphabet, and Meta. So, uh, there's a term which is not really re so relevant anymore, but it's called FANG, the FANG stocks. And this refers to the big five companies in the U.S. market. So FANG actually stands for Facebook, Amazon, Apple. Um, I believe actually the... Netflix the was the initial one. Netflix. Yes. Yeah. I, I believe that the, the, the N originally stood for Netflix, but it's we're, we're, we're calling this FANG. The, the, the big five that... That's, that Fam, is normally referred to here are are Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Google. Um, but of course, Facebook is now Meta. Um, Google is not Google. Google is Alphabet. So it's it the, the term doesn't really uh, doesn't really apply anymore. But the whole point here is that uh, these are absolutely massive companies, the five most important companies on the stock market. So if you add all of these up together. You're getting a market capitalization of upwards almost $8 trillion between these five companies. Now, let's just put this uh, into context here. Um, if you were to look at the NASDAQ, so these are all NASDAQ listed companies. There's about 3,300 companies that are listed on the NASDAQ. Uh, and there's an estimated market value of the entire NASDAQ exchange of about $19 trillion. So 42% of the value of the NASDAQ is just attributed to these five companies. And then the other 58% to the other 3,295 companies. So if you were to look at the S&P 500, which is the 500 largest companies 
in the U.S., uh, the percentage that is attributable to uh, these five companies is lower, um, but it's still about 23%. So these are incredibly important companies in the market. They absolutely move the market. They are behemoths uh, in, in, in the global, um, global realm of the stock market. So why don't we just walk through these? Uh, we're going to talk about Microsoft first. So they released uh, this week their, their, their Q3 results, fiscal Q3 2023. Revenue was up 7% uh, year over year. And what was dri driving the strong revenue growth was uh, a continued leadership in Microsoft Cloud, Cloud con continuing to grow about 22% um, in the quarter, 25% on a constant currency basis. Microsoft overall had operating income increase about 10% to $22 billion. Net income was up 9% and earnings per share were up 245. So these results, they, they exceeded analyst expectations. They exceeded my expectations. Um, productivity business processes revenue was up 11%. Intelligent cloud revenue up 16%. And it was just the the more personal computing division which uh, which saw a decline. So this is more of the hardware devices, and that was down nine percent for the quarter. Um, so as I said, this was a beat. Uh, the the non GAAP EPS of two forty five beat analyst estimates by twenty two cents. Revenue beat analyst estimates by about one point eight five billion dollars. So great uh, great performance from the company exceeding our ex expectations, exceeding analyst consensus. The stock has since increased 12% since the release of the results. Now, one of the big things we've been hearing about, a lot about Microsoft that we've spoken about as well is a huge buzz around their investments into OpenAI, which is the developer and owner of ChatGPT. So this is currently the most advanced artificial intelligence technology in the world. Microsoft has a partnership with OpenAI and they are in the process of integrating um, AI across their entire uh, software services uh, suite. So one of the things that they have done recently is they've upgraded Bing with a new chat service, which is powered by essentially chat GPT. So you can actually have a conversation with the search engine, which is, which is somewhat unique. Uh, analysts um, for fiscal 2024, they're looking for growth of about 14%. So their fiscal year, Microsoft's fiscal year that actually starts in July, uh, a little bit different than the other tech companies that we're going to talk about. Um, but 1093 in earnings per share, that would put Microsoft at a valuation of about 28 times earnings based on forward expectations. So uh, great performance for Microsoft. Very interesting space that they're in right now with the AI. They've really propelled themselves to the forefront of the AI race. And then as well, performing extremely well in cloud, their, their Azure cloud computing platform continue to increase market share in 2022 owning about 23% of the global share of the cloud computing market, which was up from 22% in the year before. Uh, next we will talk about is Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. So they released their Q1 2023 results. Revenue was up 3% year over year. Uh, Google search produced 40 billion in revenue, Google Cloud 7.5 billion. About one thing that's important to note, uh, Google Cloud, uh, um, Alphabet's cloud computing platform. Uh, it is growing, it is it is acquiring market share from competitors. However, it is actually not profitable right now. So uh, nearly all of the company's profit comes from Google search. Uh, operating income for Alphabet uh, decreased to about 17 billion, um, down from 20 billion. Operating margin was 25% for the quarter compared to 30% in 
in the same quarter last year. And then net income fell from 15 billion or $1.17 um, from 16.4 billion last year or $1.23 per share. So one of the things that, that impacted uh, Alphabet in the quarters, they recorded about 2.6 billion in charges related to uh, workforce reductions or essentially laying off people. It's a big theme in tech right now. Companies are laying off people. They're really trying to streamline their operations and focusing on margins, which is something they have not had to do in recent years. Um, but still a great beat by Alphabet. Um, their earnings per share of $1.17 beat analyst estimates by 10 cents. Revenue of just under 70 billion beat by about a billion dollars. Now, Alphabet has recently released Bard AI. This is in response to uh, competition from ChatGPT and also Microsoft's new Bing. So Microsoft has been very vocal that they are going after Google for share of the search market. Bing has been, you know, not really taken that been taken that seriously in the past, but now that they have upgraded it with Chat GPT capabilities, uh, they may have injected some uh, some power into it, and it's it's starting to get more interest. So Alphabet is seen by many as is now on the defense, um, and it's up to them to to create a response. That response has been Bard AI, but Bard AI has not yet been released publicly. So I'm personally on the wait list. I have not um, been able to play with it yet. Um, I have seen some demonstrations uh, where people have compared it to GPT-4. Um, in some areas, it's it's comparable. In others, it's not. Um, but in any in any event, uh, Alphabet is, has, is a reputation of having some of the best AI engineers in the world, uh, one of the top AI companies in the world, bar none. So it'd be interesting to see what they come out with. Now, looking forward, um, analysts for the current year are expecting earnings per share growth of about 15% to 524. And that puts the valuation of Alphabet right now at about 20 times earnings. So one of the things about investing in Alphabet is they do have the overhang of the potential of increased competition from ChatGPT and the new Bing. Um, but that is also, is also factored into the stock price. So 20 times earnings, this is one of the lowest valuations that Alphabet has traded at in its history as a public company. And analysts are still expecting growth this year. So we will keep a close eye on the company over the next couple of quarters and see how things, uh, see how things trend. Uh, next up, Amazon. Uh, so they put out their, their Q1 results. Net sales increased 9%. Uh, North American net sales up 11%. And AWS, which is their cloud computing service, increased sales 16% year over year. <clears throat> Operating income in the quarter rose to $4.8 billion, up from $3.7 billion. AWS, the cloud computing operating income, reached $5.1 billion. So this is something that we really have to pay attention to here. Overall operating income for the entire company, 4.8 billion. Cloud computing operating income, 5.1. So what is that telling you? It means that the only profitable part of, of Amazon's business is cloud, right? So when we think of Amazon, we typically think of amazon.com, the e-commerce platform, um, but it actually doesn't make that much money. And in fact, currently it is losing money with amazon.com. Um, and really, it's 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 the cloud computing that has been that has been bolstering the business, and this has been the case um, for some time. Certainly, cloud is leading the company in terms of profitability and growth. Um, but one thing that we also have to note with the cloud computing platform is that, well, the two biggest competitors, Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud, have been growing their market share in the high growth cloud space 
Uh, Amazon is not their market share, although they are number one. It's been pretty stagnant, stagnant, 32, 33% um, of market share globally. Uh, it's been stagnant there for the last several years. Um, and then they've also noted that cloud growth is starting to glow, grow or slow just the overall market. So this is something to keep an eye on. Um, but they did outperform analyst expectations by quite quite a margin, uh, earnings per share of 31 cents, beat estimates by 11 cents, uh, revenue of 127 billion beat by almost $3 billion. They did put out guidance for the second quarter. They expect net sales to grow between five to 10% year over year. Um, cloud computing, of course, once again, this is the primary driver of growth and profitability. Uh, so, you know, it, it is somewhat concerning that they're not able to grow their market share in that space while their two next largest competitors have been. Um, looking at analyst estimates for the current year, uh, the midpoint of consensus is for Amazon to generate earnings per share of $1.54. This is up from a loss last year. Uh, and this puts the valuation of the stock at about 66 times earnings. So Amazon has always really been the, the most expensive of the big five. Um, whereas if you look at Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, um, Apple as well, the valuations have been fairly reasonable, whereas Amazon has always traded at a, a big premium to the market. It also has a more levered balance sheet than the other companies. So generally speaking, Amazon has been our least favorite of the group. And then there's Meta Platforms, finally. Uh, Meta, uh, formerly Facebook, released their Q1s, 3% year-over-year revenue growth to just under $29 billion. Um, driven by a 26% increase in ad impressions. Um, however, the average price per ad has declined by 17%. Uh, net income was down, earnings per share were down for the quarter. Uh, they did report a 5% increase in daily active people, daily active users, um, and Facebook monthly users also increased by 2%. Now, Meta's talked a lot, uh, has been very active with respect to laying people off, as many tech companies have. In March of this year, they announced three rounds of plan, plan, planned layoffs. They want to reduce the employee count by about 10,000. That's fairly consi significant considering at the end of the quarter Q1, the headcount of the company, the total number of employees was 77,000. Um, and that, that number does not include the 10,000 um, that they announced that they will be laying off. Uh, but, but a fairly significant beat on the net earnings line, they reported uh, 220 in earnings for the for the quarter, um, beating estimates by 23 cents, revenue of 28.65 billion, beating estimates by 990 million. The stock price uh, performed extremely well since the release of the results, up 14%. And they have also provided guidance for the next quarter, revenue between 29.5 and 32 billion. So that would be year-over-year -year growth of between 2% and 11%. So analysts this year have them growing at midpoint of the analyst consensus as EPS increasing 25% uh, in 2023 to 1075. And this would put Meta at a valuation of about 23 times earnings. Uh, looks like analyst expectations for growth next year as well are fairly optimistic. Um, we'll see how the company does over the next few quarters. Well, that was a, a good summary of the um, big tech. Um, yeah, I mean, we've been we've looked at those names multiple times, many times over the past uh, five plus years, and uh, you know we have some favorites in there. Our current buys on the list, 
uh, and uh, they continue to perform well. And I think they need to continue to be a part of a, a well-diversified or a well-put-together, not necessarily well-diversified, well-put-together portfolio. I wonder what Kramer's thinking right now is, uh, you know, because I've been seeing so many headlines talking about, oh, Meta's been running, you know, it's the best performer right now. But I wonder what Kramer's thinking. But right didn't now. he cry and say he well, was wrong? That's what I mean. I mean, I'm that's wondering. If well, maybe it, wasn't that the exact moment lie. it turned around? Or no? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah, I mean, basically. basically. Oh, impressive. You know, I, I'm sorry. I'll just say we're, we're picking stocks here. There's no need to cry in the news. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. He'll cry well, if he wants it's crocodile to. tears. Cry if he There's, wants we to. want Brennan to sing. That yep. would be great. Yeah. That's what we should do. All right. Let's let's get on to uh Brennan. Or actually we're gonna talk about how Brett's gonna look at one of the biggest stories. The biggest stories that we collapse. First Republic Bank. I'll let you take it over. In March, we saw the voluntary wind down of the crypto bank Silvergate Capital, the swift collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and the Swiss bank Credit Suisse having a shotgun marriage to UBS just before falling apart. But now, after teetering on the edge of failure over the past month, JP Morgan and Chase has taken over the majority of First Republic Bank's operations after a Sunday night deal, making it the largest US bank failure since 2008. Let's go through a nice timeline of the events that have led up to the failure of First Republic. Before the collapse, as interest rates have risen over the past year or so, the company saw its net interest spread, which is the difference between the rate it receives on its loans and the assets compared to its cost of borrowing, shrinking from 2.58% in Q4 2021 to 1.74% in Q4 2022. So this was before you saw any really change, major change in the stock price no collapse at this point, but it's already looking a bit riskier as its earnings or its net interest margin, which leads down to earnings, has shrunk. So during the series of failures and takeovers in March, First Republic saw its about a hundred billion in deposit outflows, which is due to its roughly 80% being of its 177 total deposits being uninsured. So all those uninsured deposits, they were getting scared, they were running to the big banks, they were pulling out all their money. In addition to that, so the FDIC backed the deposits they've received, then $30 billion in support from a coalition of banks, including JP and Morgan, to help the shortfall from the deposits all withdrawing, but they still roughly had a shortfall of $70 billion. In the same amount announcement of them receiving funding from these banks, they also suspended their dividend. Great sign so far. So, and this was all in March, and now we're moving a bit forward. So a month later, we see the Q1 earnings, which show the extent of the bank run, all the details, all the hiding co operating costs, and all the restructuring parts of it. As the short-term loans it has taken on were based on higher interest rates, its running cost of borrow was pushed up to 2.73%, up from 1.76 in the last quarter. So a three-month difference, and they're up a whole percentage point practically in their net borrowing costs, which is massive for a bank. In the last quarter of last year, it was only 0.19%, just to give you an idea how it was already increased. On the other hand, loans were only 3.66%, up from 3.51 in the last quarter, compared to 2.78%. So yeah, they, they were getting more on their loans, but not nearly as much of an increase. It was about a 2% increase on the borrowing, 2.5%, versus 1% on the loans, what they were receiving. So big difference in the spread getting crushed. Their net interest spread is now 0.93%. However, this also includes their non-interest 
bearing loans. So those are your checking deposits and accounts like that, where they're not paying money on it. When you only consider the funds which the company is paying interest on, this cost to borrow is actually 4.33%. So that is more than what they were receiving from their loans at 3.66%. So just holding on to these loans, we're losing them money, meaning that they now need to offload uh, these loans and they would really realize significant losses on their books as many of these securities have decreased in market value over the past year compared to the accounting book value as they're considered being held to maturity at the time. So they don't actually realize the market value loss as they occur. They only realize the amortization, which skews it. And this is something which we also saw in Silicon Valley Bank. So as the bank effectively had no other choice because they were losing money on it, they have to offload these loans. They announced this, but the market didn't like this, of course, and they shouldn't like it. So the day following the earnings, the shares fell rightfully. So it cut from at 16 the previous day to about $8. And by the end of last week, the shares were only trading at $3.51. And just a reminder, before the fall at the March, when all the banks were collapsing, the company was trading at about $120 a share, a 97% for a bank in over a month. Last weekend, regular seized the bank and had an auction for the bank's assets with JP Morgan taking over the majority of these assets. JP Morgan will pay the FDIC about $10.6 billion, but this fiasco also costs the deposit insurance fund, which the FDIC runs, an estimated $13 billion more. We'll have these final figures probably work over the next couple of weeks. So as far as the First Republic shareholders go, they receive nothing again. So your bank, your equity holders wiped out. This is not the first time JP Morgan has taken advantage of distressed financial companies. They were a big player in the 08 crisis. They took over Bear Stearns and as well as Washington Mutual, the previous largest U.S. bank failure. But it still is. It's the largest, and then this is the largest since that. Regulators waived the 10% total deposit limit, which JP Morgan was already passed. So now they're even a bigger bank. And there's your too big to fail coming up in five years or so. I, I just about that. that no idea if that's going to happen. But in summary of the event, the bank has been having seen a shrinking net interest uh, spread already. Then the bank saw a significant outflow due to these uninsured deposits, which further crushes net interest spread to the point of losing money on its holding loans. In other words, they failed at the core operation of a bank lending more from what they can borrow for. If we look at the causation events, it's similar to SVB. Management failed at, and it exacerbated a bank run. The company could have immunized its interest rate spread by uh, running into swaps. It's a very common thing. There's hundreds and hundreds of trillions of outstanding swaps, just to give you an idea. It's not like it's an obscure market. They could have done this. Banks do it all the time. And they wouldn't have seen this issue where their spread gets smaller and smaller. It would have stayed the same, but it would have been slightly lower than I would have peak. And that's what they were doing. They were taking on more risk. And then once the interest rate structure starts to change, they're starting to accumulate that risk. And then it hits this point and it crushes the bank immediately. So as I've said before, though, any bank can really be susceptible to a bank run. Even the biggest banks, if there's a big enough bank run, they'll get taken out. But the riskier bank and the weaker the operations like we saw here, the more likelihood it is. So you can say, oh, it's the bank run's fault. It's the companies for pulling out. No, it's really the management's fault. You can add like 1% onto people taking out their money, but Pretty much anyone would do if you were in their case. If you saw your money actually at risk, if you weren't insured, you'd probably be doing the same thing. And then it's the bank's job to understand these risks, and they did not understand the risk clearly. Awesome. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, it, psychology is really everything when it comes to the banking industry. I mean, there needs to be trust. I, it, it, the whole point of a 
of a deposit is that you can access it when you need to. But if everybody accesses it at the same time, I mean, the bank doesn't have all your money there. The, the business model of the bank is to take deposits and then loan those out. So if enough people want their money back in a short enough period of time, the bank has to deny them. Yeah, that's why you have to run it well, right? You just have to run it well. And and these yeah. just weren't being run well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, and, then, it's, and then, of course, another issue right now is that banks, with with some of their capital that they use to um, to return deposits, they'll put into treasuries. Well, if you bought treasuries you know, a couple of years ago, then with interest rates going up, the prices of those treasuries decline. Then if you have to, if you have to go to the market and sell them so that you can pay back depositors, you're selling them at a discount. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bad thing when it happens. Yeah. And I mean, like Warren Buffett alluded, I mean, this was the beginning of April. He ended up going on CNBC squawk box alluded to, he basically said, you know, we're not over bank failures, but depositors haven't had a crisis. Um, and he says, basically banks go bust, but depositors aren't going to get hurt. And then he goes on to say, the costs of the FDIC are borne by the banks. Banks have never cost the federal government a dime. The public doesn't understand that. He added, nobody is going to lose money on a deposit in a U.S. bank. It's not going to happen. You don't need to turn a dumb decision by managers into a panicking or into a panicking the whole citizenry uh, of the United States about something they don't need to be panicked about. Um, so again, it just comes down to, you know, managers making a, a dumb decision and then, you know, everybody panicking, running on, run on deposits. All right, let's move on to our final segment. Brennan, you're going to take a look at, uh, look into banks more and they're extending their mortgages on mass to try to ease some of the pain, uh, just extending those over longer terms. And you're going to get into, uh, why that is occurring and should it be occurring? So yes, it, it recently came to uh, my attention uh, that Canadian banks have begun extending um, uh, mortgage amortization periods on outstanding mortgages as an attempt to help ease the pain of some Canadians facing higher interest rates and ongoing inflationary pressures. And there have been multiple articles out there, uh, such as this headline, uh, which I have up on the screen that indicates a third of Canadian homeowners with a mortgage now have amortization periods of more than 30 years with major lenders like RBC, BMO, CIBC, and TD seeing sharply higher percentages of their mortgage portfolios with amortization periods north of 30 years. And to put this into perspective, none of these banks had mortgages with amortization periods over 30 years in October of 2021. And as of the fourth quarter, roughly 30% of their mortgage portfolios had amortization rates above 30 years. So let's pull up a few of these banks' mortgages by remaining amortization tables to see how they really look. So first here, we have CIBC. So you can see in October of 31st of 2021, essentially they had no loans or no mortgages with an amortization greater than 35 years. Now, um, I guess this isn't the most recent quarter, but the previous quarter before that, 26% of their mortgages uh, were now over 35 years. Uh, with RBC, same thing we can see here. Uh, in 2021, no mortgages over 35 years. Now about 23% of the portfolio. And if we move on to TD, we can say, see this exact same thing. 
2021, nothing essentially. And in 2022, about 25% in Canada. So what does this mean for Canadians and banks? Well, number one, Canadians who now have an amortization period of over 35 years are going to be paying much more in interest. So using my handy dandy financial calculator, I quickly whipped up this table, which compares a $500,000 mortgage paying an interest rate of about 4.5% over 25 years and a 40 year amortization period just to compare them. And as you can see from the table that I have up on the screen, the mortgage with the longer 40-year amortization has a lower monthly payment of approximately $2,250, but 83% of that payment is going to interest, while only 17% is going towards paying down the principal. So although Canadians who have extended are avoiding some near-term pain, they're essentially moving closer to being or to renting their homes from the bank as their monthly payment uh, just fractionally goes towards the principal on their mortgage. And for the banks, while the strategy may be attractive, it is not without risk uh, as it keeps borrowers in debt longer. And as I indicated, leads to much more interest being paid uh, over the life of the mortgage. Now, the question was recently raised to the Bank of Canada Senior Deputy uh, Governor Carolyn Rogers on whether she was concerned with the situation. And she noted that the Bank of Canada asked this very question to several unnamed banks in April and that lenders are concerned about ever-growing amortization periods. Now, there are a few caveats here, as from my understanding, in most cases, the extended mortgage contracts will revert to the original amortization schedule at the next term renewal, which of course will translate uh, these Canadians into higher mortgage payments. So eventually this pain will come in. They're just essentially delaying it. Um, and I also wanted to show here uh, in the Bank of Canada's monetary policy report for the month of April, they also indicated that mortgage borrowers have been ditching the five-year fixed rates and variable uh, rate mortgages for shorter term fixed rates, and that both uh, the one to two year fixed and three to four year fixed rates are on the upswing, uh, comprising roughly 30% and 25% of all new mortgages in 2022, respectively. Now, moving forward, this is definitely something that we will uh, continue to monitor. And uh, yeah, I guess now I'll just uh, open up to the guys to see if they have uh, any comments. Oh, that's a, that's a great breakdown, Brendan. I, I love how you pulled the, the data right, right from the, mm -hmm. right from the bank uh, financial statements, financial yeah. reporting. My first thought when I read the headline there, it was, was that seems high. I, I'm that's, that's yeah. shocking to me that, mm -hmm. um, that that changed so quickly, but I mean, you, you have the numbers. But you right see there. it there right in print. It is, yeah. it is fairly shocking. And it is interesting. I think the, the tidbit you had in there, the terms are reverting back to the original terms. Yeah when the mortgage is due. So if someone had a five-year term um, at, and they amortized for 25 years uh, and it's initial five-year term they had under contract, it should, and if they extended to 40 years, for example, uh, and they were three years left and three years, that should then in theory go back or they could go to a 25. Okay. I mean, right then they're hoping that rates go lower because uh, if they don't, I mean, unless their income has increased over those three years or two years up to the term, 
they're going to be in the same situation. So they're going to need the 40 years once again. If interest rates higher, they might need even more. But, uh, you know, if they come down, you know, perhaps they're betting that that would happen. But it is certainly pushing the pain into the future at some point. If everything stays the same, rates stay the same, unless their income goes up or they find some other way of generating income, uh, they won't be able to afford a 25-year mortgage at the, the rate it's at right now. So, you know, something will hit the fan at some point unless for these people uh, rates go lower. And it is a significant now portion of those uh, mortgages and, and will it continue to increase? Like that's something to track if you get to 40, 50% of the mortgage. Well, I mean, it's gone up from nothing to astronomical significant yeah. number. So, I mean, this is, this is how obviously how Canadians have been dealing with the higher rates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we've kind of been, saying how is this happening how is it happening well they've just been allowed well, to extend. I would have expected more of an impact maybe to the housing market given yeah. where rates were but this is this is a clue as to what's been going on well in japan uh they have a hundred year amortization mortgage wow yeah so it is just crazy out. too to see like how many people were taking out variable rate mortgages you know in 2021 and uh you know, I mean, which was, yeah, is that fifty percent? Um, yes, yeah, fifty percent variable. You yeah, know, at that point, yeah. and I mean, yeah, I just I, I didn't even expect that. But you would think logically too, it should be reversed, where you're taking out the fixed rate when it was low and the variable yeah, you, rate when it's high. But is that interest rates at the time? Is that the yeah. bank like pushing? You could have got around that no. time. You could have got a, a five-year fix for less than two percent. Human beings want their cake and to eat it too. They'll get the lowest payment possible there at that moment and be able to afford the shoes they want the next day as well, right? So I mean, that's literally what's going on there, in my opinion. And they're just, you know. Uh, not planning for the future. Oh, oh, what if rates go up? Well, they won't tomorrow. So then, you know, I get to buy the shoes and or go on just, a vacation. Or there's just the narrative, like they've been low for so long. There's just the narrative. Yeah. Like, oh, no, no, they're not going to go up. Right? The thing, th- there you wasn't know, that, that there wasn't a monumental mm-hmm. difference between the two. You know what I mean? Like, like mm-hmm. your variable and a, a well-negotiated fixed rate at that yeah. point, right? I think the fixed posted rates drove people towards the variable, but you didn't, almost no one had to pay a fixed posted rate at that time. And you can negotiate it down significantly just with a slight bit of checking around, but people don't want to do that often. And, you know, it's something that I would advise always do. Don't pay that posted rate, go out there and shop it around. Uh, Especially, you know, if you want to lower your rate, which you should, it should be huge. And, And, you know, it's a big part of your life, your mortgage, your house. So anyways, uh, hopefully you pay attention to that. When If rates do come down again, you know, it's a good time to lock in. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's pretty simple. All right. Well, that's going to close out our show for this week. It's great to be back uh, with you guys, although I don't think we missed. We didn't even miss last week. We just left the day after. But it's great to be back. It was an interesting trip to Vegas. Uh, some uh, new companies we may introduce to our clients. I'd like to always wish everybody, uh, well, first off, I'd like to say smash the subscribe button. Smash that button. If you like the content, you're watching this on YouTube. Rate us. If you're listening to the podcast, rate us on iTunes. Continue to do that, and we'll put out the content every week. Uh, And I say thank you, and profitable investing. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.